Let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm 73. Once again, we consider the wonderful Word of God through the psalmist Asaph in Psalm 73. This will be the last sermon on this psalm and the last sermon on the psalms until we meet them again next summer, God willing. Psalm 73, we consider the last two verses. I want to consider this in context and to speak, therefore, um, in Contextually, we'll read the entire word of God. Truly, God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore, as people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them, and they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I've cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down in destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant, I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And now hear our text. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God, that I may declare all your works. Thus far we read this inspired Man, whom we've noted, was an honest man. The Bible is true. The Bible is the Word of God, and inspired by the true God through honest men who spoke of their troubles 
of their perplexities, of the fact that the things of God were too profound for them. They spoke of their enemies. They spoke with complaint. They spoke with passion, did those inspired psalmists and the other people whom God used to write his word. And thereby we are met with people just like ourselves, people who have these struggles and trials. And here Asaph was having trouble with the good God who's supposed to be good to Israel and whom he declares to be good in his theological declaration in the first verse, God is good to Israel. Surely, to such as are a pure heart, but he confesses that his feet had slipped because on the ground it didn't look that way, that God was good to Israel and, and that the wicked were not themselves favored instead of the righteous. So the psalmist is having a problem here, a problem with this theology, this theory. He was thinking it was just a theory by the time and just before he went into the sanctuary, that God is the God of grace and who will care for his people. And here it is, the wicked, they're going and they're prospering and they're having their way and they're having their fun and they're having their cake and their ice cream and everything else they want to eat of the world. And the psalmist is rather fed up with it until he says, uh, and and so he says, uh, surely I've cleansed my hands in vain. I've gone to the house of God and done the ablutions and done all of the religious stuff and dressed up and made the commitment and so on and And yet, what's come of it? And outside, there's the prosperity and the people playing in the park and all of this stuff. What about it? Well, the psalmist, we know, found the answer. And we've been considering the great revelation he had when he finally went to the sanctuary of God. And that would be referring to the tabernacle, and that would be referring to going to God, to going to God in prayer and worship and and not first going to the things and evaluating and developing a theology out of things or on Division Avenue, as our professor used to say, don't do your theology on Division Avenue. He went to the Word and it was able, because he went there by faith and on bended knee, finally to get it Finally, to understand the way of the wicked, not good. The way of the righteous, still good, because God is good to Israel. And this is similar, really, to the text that we consider in our, uh, this service tonight, which speaks at its heart of the goodness of a person who draws near to God. That is, of a good benefit for a person who draws near to God. Sounds like the sanctuary language. Well, it is. And the psalmist is speaking here of something whereby he gains many benefits, drawing near to God. That's in the sanctuary, and that's near to the heart of God. So we want to consider this. We want to consider this whole idea of drawing near to God. And we want to consider this, beloved, because I don't know about you, but I do not want to settle for anything less than this, being near to God. This morning, as we concluded a series, or at least so far, on Exodus, we considered that we want to be tabernacle Christians. We want to be right there in the worship of God. 
And here tonight in our last, ser- uh, last sermon of Psalms this summer, I want to leave our whole journey through the Psalms so far and ask ourselves the question, shall we not be near to God as a result of the word we've heard, the word that's been expounded, the meditations we've heard and, and believed, shall we not be near to God? You see, let us not settle for anything less than being that near, being that sort of a tabernacling, worshiping Christian. So may there be no distance between us and God, no spiritual gap in our communion as a result of this sermon. Drawing near to God, let's consider, first of all, that it's good for me. Personally, we want to say this, it's good for me. And then it's grace for me. And then finally, that there's something to be declared by me or from me. As the psalmist says, I will declare all your works. So we consider this wonderful statement, it is good for me to draw near to God. That's verse 28, first part. We'll get to the verse 27 uh, and the negative in a little bit here. Drawing near to God. Now that's a question uh, there, there should be a question for us who want to understand the Bible biblically. And if we want to understand the Bible biblically, we understand the impossibility of anyone drawing near to God because God is far away. That is, he's, he's spirit, and he's above us. He's infinite, and he knows no bounds, and we can't walk to him, children. You can't walk and say, now I'm near to God. I'm near to God because I walk somewhere. You can't even do anything of intellectual gymnastics and think your way up to God. That's not like that. He can't be contained and he can't be approached like another human being, even a great human being. You might approach a king with trembling, trepidation, and you've got to get past the guards, but you might still do it. But not God, unless there's something that he does, like draw near to you first. And that's actually what is the, um, the truth that is behind this statement of the psalmist, it's good for me to draw near to God. This psalmist is, after all, a child of God. And to become a child of God, God has to draw near to you. God has to work in your heart and draw you by the Holy Spirit and give you life. That's exactly what the state of the psalmist is. But he speaks of something that happens after God draws near to us, his drawing near to God. Beautiful. And as Christians, we know what this all means. We know that we are brought near to God when we were sinful, and we were brought near to God by the blood of Jesus. Let me read a couple of verses. Ephesians 2.13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, the psalmist didn't have the blood of Christ yet, but he had the promise of the blood of Christ, and that, for the Old Testament saints, was as good as the blood. I will say that reverently because it was the word of God in the Old Testament. Sinners were those who redeemed in the, in the, in the Old Testament. They were not just hanging there. They were redeemed by promise, the promise of the blood to come. And now us, we are brought near by the blood of Jesus, we who were far off in sins, 
1 Peter 3.18 is similar to this. It speaks there. So I'll get this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. So the whole purpose of the blood of Jesus and of the God of Jesus, the God and Father of his Son, Jesus Christ, was to bring sinners near to God, and he's done that. But now, it's the case that sinners are called to and delight in drawing themselves near to God. They love God. They don't want to be far from God. Everything in their life is the fact that they've been brought near to God, and that would be in fellowship with him. And now they want nothing to get in the way. Are you thinking now of something you already know before I even preach it, that there is a lot of stuff that can get in the way of you and God? I was thinking of this the whole time I wrote the sermon. I said, now I'm going to make this testimony myself before a congregation. Am I just a hypocrite? Is this my delight and my statement of faith, my confession of faith? It is good for me to draw near to God. It better be, or I'm a dead man. Far from God, because God's people to whom God has drawn near, they love doing this. They love doing this thing called moving toward God. And of course, as I said, you can't move physically and say, now I'm closer to God because I'm over here, or because I've climbed some ladder or stood on this bench here. That doesn't get you nearer to God. Well, what does? Well, the key is found in the text here. The psalmist says, it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God, in Jehovah, the covenant God of Israel, God, the God who's God. I put my trust in the Lord God. And that is precisely what he's talking about when he speaks of drawing near to God. It's an activity of faith. Faith, which is the substance of things hoped for in the future, the evidence of things not seen, the things of the kingdom of heaven, the things of God and God himself. So it's a spiritual movement drawing near, a spiritual movement from one place of being not so near to another of being nearer, nearer, my God, to thee. He's talking about things that people sing of, long for, that people who are called Christians sing of and long for, to be nearer to God. The psalmist is perhaps speaking of another psalm where the psalmist says, with thee is the fountain of life. He knows this Lord God as the fountain of life. There's many names for God in the Bible. One is fountain of life. It's a title which speaks of God as being the source of life. And, well, when you put drawing near to God together and a psalmist saying, with thee is the fountain of life, there is no other who has the fountain of life, you can picture a person coming with a little pitcher 
because that's all us people can carry is a little pitcher, an empty thing that you put water in maybe. But he comes and it's empty because he has nothing in himself. And he draws from the fountain and he fills up the, fount- the pitcher with the life that spills from God. Now there's a believer believing in another called God. Another even who has life that he needs desperately and which is a fountain to drink from. So he comes and it's a spiritual movement. And no doubt the psalmist knows something by faith of what we know by faith in light of the New Testament of the God who is the Lord God who's come into this earth, the tabernacling God in Jesus Christ revealed. Yes, I have put my trust in the Lord God. We say that means I have put my trust in the Lord God revealed in Jesus Christ. I believe God. I clutch the Christ. I cling to Jesus. Because by his blood I've been brought near. And by his spirit this is a personal thing now to me. And as he says, he's the way to the Father. And nobody comes to God let alone draws near to God, except by the mediator, Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Those who may be hearing on the internet, you're hearing that there's a God and there's only one way to God, this God of the holy word and of the, whole, and the holy storm that swept through Grand Rapids this past week, and of the holy fires in Maui, and of all the world. He's the God who sent his son and he's laid down the life of his son on the cross for sinners. And the way to God is through him. Hebrews 10 reminds us that drawing near to God is this activity that is in light of the truth of the son of God. Hebrews 10 21, having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near, same word, draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, I trust in God, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We come with empty pitchers, empty souls, cupboards, empty, not claiming any rights, To God, by faith in Jesus, we draw near that way. Inwardly it is. It's an activity of the soul. Outwardly that means, well, for the psalmist, he went to the sanctuary. And he meant that. He meant the physical sanctuary. I went to the sanctuary and there everything was made plain. Well, it means we go to church and hear the word of God. Because God says you should do that. You should do that often. It means we use the means of grace. We hear the preaching. We preach the preaching. Then we hear the preaching. We use the sacraments. We profess our faith so that we can responsibly be Christians publicly and say, I partake of Jesus, and even as much as I partake of this bread and this wine, sacramentally symbolizing the blood and the bread of Jesus. This is a priority. And prayer is right up there, too. And the Westminster Confession of Faith even says that prayer is one of the principal means of grace. Well, 
They're not far from the kingdom when they say that. Psalm 145, verses 18 and 19. The Lord is near to all who call upon him. To all who call upon him in truth, he will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He also will hear their cry and save them. There's a direct connection between calling upon the Lord and his being near to you in power, in presence. We have not because we ask not. And if we ask not for something in our life, we're really not asking to draw near to God either because he wants us to ask for everything we need and to be dependent for everything we need. He wants this congregation in every hour of need, in every season of life, in every season of family life, personal life, congregational life, to be on the knees, to draw near to God. Imagine, we were near to the park, we were near to the road, we were near to a storm, but we weren't near to God. Imagine that. Imagine that. A people that speaks of God and that he's the God of our salvation, we're not near to him. There's a lot getting in the way. Is that the case? Moving toward God is drawing near with the heart. The psalmist says here, I will draw near to God. Doesn't say, let someone else draw near to God or the minister draw near to God and I'll watch him draw near to God and I'll reap the benefits of his drawing near to God. It's good for me to draw near to God with my heart, with my affections, with my will, with my life, with my holiness. Well, isn't this nothing less or different than abiding in the vine, for example, John 15, following the good shepherd, being close and as close to God in Christ as you can get by reading the word of God yourself regularly and meditating upon the things that are above more than upon all the manuals and everything else you read for work or more than upon everything that you hear in the news. This is good for him, and I'll move on. Good for him. Drawing near to God, we've explained briefly what that means. It's having no space between you and God, no spiritual gap so that you're not in tune with the will of God, you're not submitting to God. That's what it is. And the psalmist says, it's good. It's good for me to draw near to God. Isn't that remarkable? He started out, truly God is good to Israel, to such as are of a pure heart. Now he says, it's good for me, part of Israel, Something's good for me, and it is drawing near to God. Why is it that it's near, or that drawing near to God is good for him? Why do you think he says that? Several things. The first place, he knows this, that this is how God draws near to him. Now, God has drawn near to him and brought us near to God. That's the fact. That's the established fact, like justification. We're justified by God, and there's this exoneration from guilt. This is the pronouncement of God the judge. But then there's sanctification. And that occurs continually upon the heels, as it were, upon the basis of being right with God uh, judicially. There is this condition into which we're brought. And so there's this working of God in us so that 
somehow were involved in the next process after being the justified and becoming the sanctified. There's this process of God working in us both to will and to do, you to will and me to will and you to do and me to do, of His good pleasure. He works in us that. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, remember those verses, the great verses that speak of the the combination of sovereignty, the sovereignty of God, God works in us, and the responsibility of man, both the will and to do of his good pleasure. Well, this is part of this drawing near, and expecting and hoping that God will draw near through our drawing near to him. That's what James says. James, speaking in chapter 4 of the, the terrible fact in the church that there's wars and fightings. He says, where do wars and fightings come from you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and you covet and you cannot obtain. That's in the church. You fight in war. And all you're about is bolstering and bluffing and all this kind of crap that occurs in the church. You fight in war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You don't pray. You don't pray. And you're drawing near to fight. You're drawing near to one another, but you're not drawing near to God in humble prayer. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures, adulterers and adulterers, adulteresses. There he says that to the congregation. You're still reeling because I spoke some barnyard language. Adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That's what he's talking about here, being a friend of the world and not with God. Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And on and on. Finally, he concludes in verse 7, chapter 4 of James, Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, he will draw from you, he will flee from you, excuse me, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's a promise. That's not conditional theology. I do one thing and God pats me on the back and I've merited something with God. It's simply the way of the Father. It's the way of you fathers. You expect obedience from your children. You desire it. You've really worked for them to have this. You've taught them. And when they draw near to you, there's nothing better in the world. And you draw near to them and you hug them. Well, that's the first benefit. The psalmist here, he was really far from God. He was in this world and sea of things. And then he went to the sanctuary, drew near to God, and lo and behold, God drew near to him and said, Son, let me tell you something. And the second thing is that God told him, here's wisdom. Then I understood their end, he said, when I went in the sanctuary of God. I understood wisdom. You see, we've said in this psalm, it's all about things good and things bad and the good God, and he's distributing good things to wicked people and bad things are not so good things to good people, and he couldn't make heads or tails of it. 
But wisdom in make is making heads and tails of things. More than that, it's under this understanding simply the way of God that's not our way. The goals of God, the higher wisdom, the ways and the thoughts, as Isaiah says, chapter 55, that are not ours, they are divine. Basically, what it is, is understanding the way of the cross, the way of God with us in his becoming a man, and the way of his son dying for us and rising from the dead. The whole gospel is understood when you go to the sanctuary of God. That's why it's good for him, profitable for him. Gains his God back, as it were. There's God in his life. God whispering to him covenantal secrets. God assuring him, I'm with you. God being the God of his life now and of all of his passions and God speaking to him because he's very near. And the psalmist is very near and he can hear. Don't do that. But do this. Or don't just emote. Or don't just have this appetite and go ahead and pig out. This, these kinds of things. He says and speaks so powerfully in that communion. And which is a happy communion, of course. The psalmist in Psalm 16 speaks of at the right hand of God there being pleasures forevermore. What a joy to be in the presence of God. There's God himself, there's his wisdom, there's, there's happiness. And we're able to begin to see the purposes of God even in the darkest of providences. When the lights go out, when the water stops, far worse, at the grave, and when the world is saying there's no hope, We understand God is good to Israel. He's good to me. And it's good for me to draw near to God and see things like God does. It's life, beloved. It's life. It's understanding that that Friday was good, that that Sunday, the blessed Sunday of the empty tomb, was the confirmation of the goodness of that good Friday. And we understand that life with God is everything, though we have nothing else in this world. And no one else, no mate, no other friend, no parents, nobody but God. That's good enough if we have God. And this is forever. Yes, it is. And we've been talking about things, but one of my favorite Passages on the things of the earth, things neutral, things good, things evil, is Romans 8, which starts in this passage, verse 28, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, whom he foreknew we also predestinated, and so on. What shall, then shall we say to these things? He goes on in verse 31, these things if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And then he goes on to speak of all the things that could possibly be against the people of God. Charges laid by the devil himself. Death. 
persecution, tribulation, nakedness, peril, and sword. Nothing, he says, will be able to separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's why he says it's good for me to draw near to God because then I know I live forever. And we need this. It's good for me, it's grace to me. The psalmist speaks in this psalm, in the first verse, of it being bad for many since they don't draw near to God. Indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You've destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. Can't speak too much of this, but Isaiah the prophet in chapter 59 in verse 2 says to the people of God that iniquity has separated you from me. See, those who are far from God are separated by their sin. They are left in their sins according to the good pleasure of God. He sovereignly could leave us all in our sins, but he draws us near to himself. But he does leave justly many to be far from God, at enmity with God. Their iniquity separates themselves from God. And in this case, the psalmist may very well be speaking of those in the church who are far from God, because he says, you've destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. That's speaking of the covenantal departure from being the wife of God, the unfaithfulness of adulterers and adulteresses, as James speak, who don't pray, who never have been brought near to God by the blood of the Lamb, and who are not interested in all, even in the church, of coming near to God. They might be interested in coming to church to show face and to save face and to keep the elders out of their house. But after all, they're not in it. They're not committed to the Christ of it. And so, well, Isaiah the prophet, who minces no words, chapter 29, 13, and 14 says, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, look, they draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. Therefore, behold, I will again do a marvelous work among this people, a marvelous work and a wonder, for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hidden. He's speaking of those who apostatize in the church who come near to tradition, who come near to God in a form of prayer, but they're far from God. And that, beloved, is precisely our problem by nature. So the psalmist here, when he speaks of drawing near to God, is speaking of something that's good for him and something that speaks of grace to him. You see, there's people who never did and never do draw near to God. And then there's other people like us who are constantly distracted and deluded and even deceived by all the stuff of the world and by our own flesh. This is the psalmist's problem. It took him a while after he'd made his confession of faith, God is good to Israel. It took him a while to discover that on the ground. All around he looked, and it didn't seem as if 
God was making the ends meet and being wise and being loving and kind and being righteous. And he had, it took a while, a painful while for him to go to God and find the answer. You see, we're like the Epicureans of, of old. Those were the philosophers whose philosophy was, it's good to enjoy the pleasures of flesh. That's what's good for them. It's good for me to go to the bar. It's good to me to listen to all of the latest music that everybody else is hipping and hopping to. It's good for me to do this. It's good for me to hang out with people who are only kind of half Christian because, well, then I can have friends and somebody can flatter me and And that's what the Epicureans are all about. Eat and drink and be merry. Tomorrow we die. There's nothing in it in this world that speaks of another world. Let's eat and let's drink and let's be merry and let's gain the most toys and win. Well, the Stoics are another information or another uh, people, but they were the more virtuous philosophers of the Apostles' day and before that. They were saying it's, it's good to draw an eye to mind things. It's good to have control over your body, but think certain thoughts and be disciplined that way. These are the more virtuous people who weren't so wild and woolly as the Epicureans. Everybody has kind of invented what's good for us to do. It's good for me to assert myself. It's good to me one day to be male and another day to be female. It's good for the church to follow along with whatever is good for people. And there's us who are not Epicureans. Maybe you wouldn't say that, would you? Or Stoics. Don't even know what that means. But there's those of us, and maybe all of us, who are among those I would call not Epicureans, not Stoics, but Internetians. That's a new word. Internetians. Caught in the web of being made aware of all things good and bad, to evil people, to bad people, to good people, so that we're in it. We're in the Internet, and we're caught in it, as in a web. Ever think of that? The psalmist here could very well have said in the 21st century, I I went on this site and that site, and I found those people... They're popular. They have all of these people subscribed to them. They sell this stuff, and they're the ones who are prospering. And and look, they even go to jail, and and they're getting more likes than ever before, and so on, and they have their causes. And the Internetians have so much knowledge, but so little wisdom, because they don't have time for the things of God and above and eternity. So the 21st century Asaph would be just like this, but with a laptop and an iPad and everything else. But the repentant internetian, and I trust that's you and and that's also myself, we would have done with lesser things and visit more the word of God. And and be glad when the power goes out. 
and let the power of God come in. Be glad when all of the conveniences and all of the things that would help you to be the life of the party, the things of, did you hear this and did you hear that? And simply be content with the knowledge of God and the forgiveness and of this kingdom of heaven thing that the gospel speaks of and of eternity. Well, you know, our silliness, we actually think things can make us or break us. You ever think of that? Psalmist here is rising up above things. We've got to rise above things here. Just things, good, evil, or indifferent. Stuff, good stuff, bad stuff, whatever. But things don't make or break, break a man. They don't break you. Some people are broken because they say, well, this happened to me. There was this divorce. There was the death of my parents that became an orphan or whatever. There's this disease. That's a thing that happened to them. But you know what? It's never the thing that gets that so close to your into you that it breaks you. No, it doesn't. Things can't do that. Because you are more than another thing. You are a person. And a person with a will and a person with a heart whom God is meant to be broken if broken by Him. And not broken by things that are bad. So many of us, and I preached this before off the pulpit, are broken by the things of the world, the diseases we have. But that doesn't, make, that doesn't break you, beloved. You break yourself on those things. And you have everybody over for a pity party. And you, you say, woe is me, oh me and my, and this thing. And I know, beloved, I'm not speaking way up here as if I've never had this thing happen to me that I'm, I think that I'm some victim of some problem, some past, some guy in the playground. But it's silly foolishness. That's why the psalmist says, how foolish was I and ignorant. And just as well, he could say, and we should say that things, good things don't make you. They don't make you. They can't add to you. Not a thing. Things can't. Money can't. What can money buy for your soul? What can a sunny day do for you if the, sunny, if the soul is not smiling and enjoying the sunshine of the favor of God. See, things don't make or break you. We break ourselves in our sins. God breaks us and brings us to our knees in repentance, and he's the one who makes us what we are. By the grace of God, Paul says, I am what I am. You too? This is the beauty of this confession. Somehow he's seen through the things, avoided this pity party or this pride trip, and he said, but God is everything. That's why I confess that the greatest thing is that he holds me by the hand. I have a daddy who holds me by the hand, who loves me. I have a father in heaven. And when I can't walk, he lifts me up. And when I'm absent wisdom, by his counsel, he will guide me. 
When I think it's all just helter-skelter and chaos, I also remember the counsel of the decree of God that will guide me, and I remember that there's something greater than this earth, and it's glory. So there's none in heaven I have but God or desire upon earth besides God. God is the strength of my heart, my portion. Forever I will draw near to him. I will draw near to him. Because God has made me the man that I am. It's his man. His woman. His boy. His girl. Oh, beloved, so truly God is good to Israel. Now it's the case that we say it's good for us to draw near to God. And are we going to do that? If we are, then we have to end in a declaration. This is the purpose of it all, the praise of God. It's good for me to draw near to God. I put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works that I may declare all your works. Note how personal this is. It's good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God, that I may declare, I may declare all your works. Not the other guy, not the other church, you and me and our church and our families, that we may. That I may speak about everything that God has done in Jesus and everything God does in history and everything God does among the wicked in his justice and in his providence and everything God does for his people to save them and to cause them to put their trust in him. I will worship God and I will hear the word declared and I will be a part of this great cause called the kingdom of heaven declaring to sinners God is the God of forgiveness and mercy, calling them to trust in Him and to do the same thing that we're trying to do here. Draw near to God. Draw near to God, beloved. Get the things out of the way. And you don't need a bobcat to get rid of the trees in your way before God. You just need faith. And you say to the devils and you say to everything in your way, out of my way in the name of Jesus Christ. He wants me close to the Father. He says, you know, you come by me. And he promises that we will find the God we're looking for. I will declare his works, you too. His works in the Bible and sacred history, world history, his judgments, his salvation. But in everything, I'm going to be wanting to draw near to God. And to sing about it. You sing it? Nearer my God to thee. Nearer to thee. Even though it be a cross that raiseth me. Still all my songs shall be nearer my God to thee. Nearer to thee. Sing it. May God be praised. Amen. Father, we thank you for the wonderful truth of your nearness to us and of your working in our hearts to want to be near to you. Lord, we pray, fill in the gaps. Work in our hearts to repent of our inconsistencies when the form of religion has taken over the heart of it. 
work in our hearts and in our lives to do what's pleasing to you. Win the favor of God, not seeking to merit, but simply because we love you. We want to please you. Bless us, Lord, as we sort through the things of life, good and bad and all over the place. May we seek the kingdom things and trust that all things we need will be added to us, especially that we will know something of the great God of our salvation. And that's what life is all about, knowing God, drawing near to God. Thanks for blessing us in your house today, blessing us with with riches that are unspeakable. And yet we speak of them. We are the people who've been given faith, and therefore we speak. Lord, hear our prayers and bless all the work of our hands and of our mouths and of our hearts and of our communion presently. As we go our separate ways, may it be that we're not really separated from one another, certainly not from God. For as we draw near to God, we draw near to each other. The bliss of the church of Jesus Christ. Amen.